So we spent a good deal of time these last two days examining the strengths and weaknesses of the category of the Abrahamic in different historical and geographical and disciplinary contexts. So I'm very keen to hear from our three panelists about its possible future or futures. Our first speaker, however, will be uh, speaking not about the future, but about the past of the past of the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, Professor Guy Strumsa is Martin Buber Professor Emeritus of Comparative Religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Emeritus Professor of the Study of the Abrahamic Religions at the University of Oxford, where he is also an Emeritus Fellow at uh, Lady Margaret Hall. He's a member of the Israeli Academy of Sciences and Humanities. Professor Strumsa's research focuses on the dynamics of encounters between religious traditions and institutions in the Roman Empire and in late antiquity in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. He's the author of 14 books and the editor or co-editor of some 20 more. He's published more than 130 articles. Um, I'm glad it's Friday. Uh, it just makes me feel bad. Um, allow me to highlight two, though, that are especially relevant to this panel's topic. In 2015, he saw the publication of a co-edited volume, The Oxford Handbook of the Abrahamic Religions, which was an absolute um, saving grace for me in organizing this conference the last two days. And in that same year, 2015, he saw the publication of uh, the making of the Abrahamic religions in late antiquity. Our next speaker will be Elizabeth Lee Hood. Uh, she has been research associate for the Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative at Harvard Divinity School since its founding, or since the initiative's founding, not since the Divinity School's founding. <laughs> um, she is a PhD candidate in the study of religion at, at, Harvard, Divinity, at Harvard University's GSAS. Uh, her research focuses on Islamic devotional life, early and classical literature, spiritual ethics, and Sufism. She's interested in traditional practices and pedagogies of wisdom, virtue cultivation, and cosmopolitanism in world religions and their remarkable contributions to hum humanity's persistent endeavors to achieve a more compassionate and harmonious world. Liz co-founded and directed the first discussion and support group for multiracial students at Harvard Radcliffe College and has conducted research for the Abraham Path, an international interfaith initiative of the Harvard, Harvard Global Negotiation Project. Our third and final speaker is uh, Ahmed Raghab. He is the Richard T. Watson Associate Professor of Science and Religion at Harvard Divinity School, affiliate associate professor in the Department of the History of Science and the director of the Science, Religion, and Culture program at Harvard Divinity School. His work spans various fields and disciplines. He studies the history of science and medicine, science and religion, and the development of cultures of science and cultures of religion in the Middle East and the Islamic world. He also studies various questions related to science and religion in the United States, especially among United States Muslim populations. Raghab's research on the history of science, medicine, and culture in the Islamic world includes the history of medieval Islamic hospitals and his research on the epistemic authority of medieval Muslim women with a focus on women reporters of prophetic traditions. He is the author of the 2015 book, The Medieval Islamic Hospital, and just recently, this summer, I think, 
piety and patienthood in medieval Islam. So I've asked each of our panelists to speak for 15 to 20 minutes. After all three have spoken, I'll invite them to raise questions amongst themselves. And then we'll open it up to discussion to the wider group, giving the first question, once again, to Bill. Thank you so much. Professor Strimson. <clears throat> Well, I think it is serendipity that brought me to Harvard this week. Serendipity and Charles. Uh, and I'm delighted, absolutely delighted, to be able to say something about the man I will call Bill. Uh, uh, except for Diana Eck, I think, I'm the person who has known Bill for the longest time in this room. Uh, we met 46 years ago, to the month, across the street. Uh, I remember Bill as smart, precise, eloquent, and he's still the same, while my hair has gone thinner and uh, whiter, he has not changed. But I will tell you one thing has changed in Bill. He has gotten rid of the tie that seems, at the time, never to have departed uh, from. So, you're going with the times. Uh, so, thank you, Ahmed, for this invitation. I will speak about the past of the study of the Abrahamic religions. And uh, more precisely, I will speak about um, particular chapter in this history, but I think a crucial, which reveals a crucial aspect of the history of religions in uh, the long 19th century within the modern scholarly discipline in the making. I will, uh, I have a text which would take me half an hour to, uh, to read, so I will present seven points orally, and we can discuss them, or some of them later. Um, I want to say also something, Bill, uh, there is life after retirement, there is good life after retirement, there is even good intellectual life after retirement. I've done it, I've loved retiring so much that I've done it twice. So, uh, uh, but the second time was from Oxford. Uh, the last four years of my career I spent at Oxford as the first professor of the study of the Abrahamic religions. And my college, where I lived, Lady Margaret Hall, was at the end of Norham Gardens. So I walked through Norham Gardens, which is a street, every day, remembering that that Max Müller had been living there on this street. And I kept thinking about Max Müller in the second half of the 19th century in Oxford. He had, uh, uh, as a foreigner, he had a tough light. He started as a, as, a, as a Sanskritist, as you know, but he had a tough life studying comparatively. The, the, the Brits at the time and now didn't like that. Uh, very much, and um, at, well, Max Müller was working on religions of the East, later about that, uh, more about that later, but he had colleagues and friends, such as Ernest Renan, 
Julius Wellhausen uh, uh, and the Scott William Robertson Smith, who uh, was not a friend, but, but contemporaries. These three figures of great scholars of religion knew all the languages of the, for, uh, for, the, for the start of the study of the uh, comparative study of the Abrahamic religions, Greek and Latin, of course, and Hebrew and Arabic. Um, and yet this did not happen. The comparative, I mean, I was walking there on Noram Gardens in 2009, and I said, why, did, why was not this professorship established in 1859, for instance? And, and what I'm going to present is the, my way to answer this question of mine. Um, it's a paradox, in a sense. And what, we're do, what I want to do here is um, the history of a scholarly discipline. Uh, and it is, in fact, more than that. I want, I propose to unveil the unconscious of the discipline. Uh, unconscious, uh, you know, if Freud was right in arguing that religion is particularly Freud, fraught with repression, Verdrängung, uh, the same may be true also of the study of religion. That was my first point about how I was brought to ask myself this question. The second point. In medieval Christian societies, both in Byzantium and in the Latin West, you had one single taxonomy of religions. Christianity, vera religio, Judaism and Islam, have false, false religiones, but, but, but monothe monotheistic, and paganism. Paganism was all the rest, past and present. Greeks, the Romans, the, the Indians, everything. And this taxonomy, this very sim simple taxonomy, uh, put Judaism, Christianity, and Islam together as the monotheistic religions, in a sense. And um, th because they had family resemblances. This is true up to the 18th century, I think, grosso modo. Um, in the 18th century, you have uh, two texts that show you that it was still the case. The Livre, Livre des Trois Imposteurs, where Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad are presented as the three imposters that in the history of humanity, and they are, they are false prophets, so three of them, but, but together, similarly comp and comparable, and the parable of the three rings in Lessing's Nathan der Weise. Same thing, but this is in bonam partem, if you want. Now, these family resemblances between the Abrahamic religions became blurred after the Enlightenment. This disappeared, and this is what I'm going to, to ask myself. This is the time, so the early 19th century, is the time of the development of what I propose to call philologia orientalist. Most orientalists were primarily students of languages and literatures previously unknown to Europeans. And they felt that by studying these languages, literatures, and religions, they were fulfilling a mission of uh, cultural ambassadorship. Um, I, I don't have to uh, spend much time on uh, referring to Sir William Jones, 
an to Carl Wilhelm Friedrich Schlegels über die Sprache und Weisheit der, der Indier, 1808, uh, and suddenly Sanskrit, the discovery of Sanskrit makes India to be the new East. Until then, the Orient was the lands of the Bible and then of Islam. Now, the new East is, has moved, uh, the Orient has moved East, if you want. And uh, the religions of the so-called Aryans now attracted more attention as well as more sympathy than those of the Semites, Maybe, mainly because the former were new, as knowledge of Sanskrit was, while the idea of Semitic languages and cultures had long become familiar to scholars. To scholars. The move to the Orient, of the Orient eastward, could have led to the integration of the Near Eastern cultures and religions with the cultural and religious memory of the West, so with Christianity. If the Orient, if the border goes east, then the Near East, so Judaism and Islam for them, Hebrew and Arabic, Judaism and Islam, could have moved into into the new family of Europe. But this did not happen. This did not happen uh, because, mainly, Europe identified itself as Christian and did not want, uh, the, did not want to uh, share its identity with Judaism and Islam. Let's take a special, to be my fifth point, a special case, that of uh, Max Müller's uh, Uh, sacred books of the East. I mean, his editorship of the 50 huge volumes of sacred uh, books of the East. The Quran was included in the series, but not the Hebrew Bible. Of course, the Hebrew Bible was, uh, was ours, was Christian. Uh, and therefore, such, such an editorial decision discloses the perception of Islam as belonging to the Orient. Um, Müller, who in, himself invented, uh, coined the term Aryan, uh, could not consider Judaism, the religion of the Bible, as belonging to Asia. But then, since Europe was identified, A, as Christian, B, as Aryan, because of the languages, the Indo-European or Aryan, Judaism could not be integrated either into Europe. So the, the, the Jews, Judaism and the Jews, were neither in Europe nor in the East. Uh, this is reflected in Ernest Renan. I don't want to speak about anti-Semitism here. These are, they, they have very complex attitudes. Max Müller certainly was not. Renan was not, did not intend to be an anti-Semite. Sometimes he slips a bit, but uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, he didn't, uh, I mean, in many ways, I mean, his anti-Semitism is an anti-Islamism, actually. The Semites are the Muslims, the Jews, that those he meets in Paris can put a tie on, and therefore they can be, to some extent, part of us. Uh, so, um, this, uh, just a few minutes more. Um, Such, so so the, 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 the perception of the Jews since the Enlightenment was ambivalent. They, Herder, for instance, knew that the Jews are 
an Eastern and Eastern people lost in Europe, like the gypsies in, in some ways, and uh, we, we have to find ways to, to accept them, but not really into our identity. Sixth point, such unfavorable attitudes towards Judaism and Islam might not always have been quite calculated. But in any case, what happens is uh, then, in the 19th century, is a paradigm shift. Judaism and Islam, which, which had been until then part of the monotheistic family of religions, uh, are not anymore part of the family and are, are dropped. And, and the religions of India, being Aryan, being expressed in an Aryan language, are now, uh, people feel some similarity with. Uh, I, even identity in some cases with, with India that they do not with Judaism and Islam. It is compounded, this transformation is compounded, of course, and this is the great paradox, by the secularization of Europe. One would have thought that the secularization of Europe would have meant a, a, a friendlier attitude to Judaism and Islam, and the contrary happened. It is the, the kind of family resemblance that Muslims and Jews had with Christians was happened only as long as Europe identified itself as seriously Christian because it was a theological uh, um, perception. And uh, Islamic societies were simply painted as being the antithesis to Europe, European modernity and progress, Renan again very clearly, and the Jews on their side would now be increasingly perceived as fundamentally foreign to Europe and uh, racially so, and we know the, the rest of the story. My final point will be about the role of the Jews in Orientalist scholarship. I'm talking now about Germany and German language countries in the 19th century. In throughout the 19th century. Jews had, intellectual Jews were all, uh, all came from a traditional Jewish Talmudic education in yeshivot. They had no Latin and they had no Greek. They could not be accepted into uh, philosophical faculties in Germany and they needed in order to become rabbis, for instance, they needed an academic diploma. Oriental faculties loved the Jews because they already had, when they came, two, two, uh, or two uh, Semitic languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And they were told, just learn Arabic, one more, and then you are a full-fledged Semitist. And this is what happened, what explains that so many Jews in uh, Europe became Semitists and Arabists and Islamicists, starting with Abraham Geiger, who published in 1833 his Bonn doctoral thesis, Was hat Mohammed aus dem Judentum aufgenommen? What has Mohammed gotten from Judaism? Uh, a book that Orientalists and theologians loved. 
they all loved, loved it. That was wonderful, and it was, it was really a, a transformational moment for the study of the origins of Islam. And then Geiger was flattered, and he decided to do the same about the origins of Christianity, and he presented in a, in a later book Jesus as a Pharisee. And uh, a Hebraist like Franz Delitz said, wrote, saying that Jesus was uh, was uh, a, a Pharisee is ten times worse as the, than the crucifixion. You know? <laughs> so the, the, there was a miscalculation on uh, on uh, Geiger's part. So from Geiger up to Goldziher, uh, about whom we talked yesterday, and I reminded Bill yesterday that the first article of Goldziher I read was thanks to him. I mean, he recommended that to me. Um, so a significant number, eventually a significant number of Jewish Orientalists felt that their own ambiguous status between East and West, because they knew that they were perceived as a people from the East stuck in the West, they felt that this permitted them to become a natural bridge between Europe and the cultures and religions of Asia. And I propose that this is... Um, this explains the importance of the Jewish contribution not only to Islamic studies and Arabic studies and Semitic studies, but also to the study of uh, Iranian and Indian religions and later on Chinese religions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good afternoon. So I'm so honored to have Professor Graham as a teacher and mentor, and I'm very delighted to be here and honored celebrating him and his career. I'd like to just share from my vantage point as a humble student, and also from my little corner of research, um, some thoughts on how I see Professor Graham's work and his vision of humane scholarship as charting a course in both focus and method for important elements of what's needed for the future of the study of Islam. It was mentioned how his work is timeless. I think that might have been Mohsen. But um, I think that although some of the principles may seem ones with which people are somewhat familiar with in the study of religion, I think that they're very, very powerful actually applied in Islamic studies going forward. So in terms of focus, his work calls our attention to Islam's most fundamental aspect, its role as a devotional tradition that shaped people's understandings of God, the divine human relationship, and how to serve, worship, and draw near to God, the purpose of life in the Islamic perspective. Especially in a tradition as theocentric as Islam, in which all aspects of life are to be lived in relation to God, to shed light on this devotional aspect and the sources that inform it is essential as a foundation to inform studies of Islam and Muslim societies that delve into many other subjects from historical and comparative perspectives. Our field has been disadvantaged in the study of Islamic devotion, as it's grown up shaped by narratives and frameworks that have created notable distortions and gaps in our study. I'd like to offer an example from my doctoral research on Salat, Islam's obligatory daily prayer, in the Quran, Hadith, and some selected medieval devotional literature. 
Paul Powers offers a sampling of the types of assertions that set the tone for academic thinking about this ancient and exquisite practice during our academic field's formative development. So excerpting here and adding some details on the authors. In 1878, British soldier and author Robert Dury Osborne said of Islam, there is no creed the inner life of which has been so completely crushed under an inexorable weight of ritual. Muslims' distant view of God empties all religious acts of spiritual life and meaning and, and reduces them to rites and ceremonies. British missionary and scholar William Tisdall in 1910 claimed that the stress which Islam lays upon ceremonial observances, such as the recitation of fixed prayers at stated hours, the proper mode of prostration, etc., tends to make the great mass of Mohammedans mere formalists. Thus, it will be evident that purity of heart is neither considered necessary nor desirable. In fact, it would be hardly too much to say that it is impossible for a Muslim. In 1951, Gustav von Grunbaum, Austrian Arabist and historian, and first president of the Middle East Studies Association, remarked that Islam, its prayer marked by peculiar formalism, left the believer satisfied with an arid, if physically exacting, liturgy. Salat has been one of the most salient and consistent elements of Muslim life since the prophetic period, prayed daily by millions, young and old, from east to west, down through the centuries. As a student of Islamic devotion very interested in this topic, I was astonished to discover that where I would have expected dozens of monographs, really less than a handful of Western monographs have looked into the tradition's rich normative discourse on the prayer's place in the human being's paramount quest for nearness to God. As Professor Graham has observed, inquiry into Islam's core religious practices long focused upon questions of their historical origins and development rather than their functions and meanings in Muslim understanding. Academic observers have regarded Islam's prescribed duties as exoteric or outer practices and looked mainly to legal discourse to understand them, while discourse in the Quran, Hadith, and various devotional genres remains understudied. The perception of these practices as exoteric seems to have fostered the notion that the acts speak for themselves, perpetuating and justifying in academic terms the neglect of Muslims as subjects. Though growing interest in lived religion and phenomenological approaches has led to a number of valuable ethnographic studies of Salat, with which you may be familiar, such studies do not tend to be robustly informed by traditional discourse, leading scholars at times to draw questionable conclusions that risk being reproduced by others. Even today, for experts in the comparative study of religion, to adduce Salat as a kind of poster child for an exoteric orientation to ritual and to project upon its Muslim practitioners attitudes of their own envisioning without offering any insider supporting data or perhaps extrapolating from data on Judaism's daily prayers remains surprisingly acceptable in the field. Thus, academic discourse on Islamic devotion in 2018 in basic ways continues patterns that we saw in 1878 and perpetuates some of their major lacunae. When we excavate currents that have formed academic thinking on Islamic devotion, we find that it's been shaped by centuries of Christian polemic against so-called Semitic religions, with supersessionist stereotypes of Judaism extended to Islam, 
Descriptions by European missionaries and colonialists invested in depicting Muslims and their religion in a dehumanizing manner. Post-Enlightenment, post-Protestant, and modern secular biases against religion's formal aspects. Writings by seminal thinkers and religious studies that identify authentic religion and authentic prayer with the private and the spontaneous. A scholarly preoccupation with dogmatic and sectarian controversies that tends to obscure continuities, coherences, and on-the-ground connections. And dichotomous thinking that posits the universality of oppositions between high versus low religion, legal versus spiritual religion, fear-based religiosity versus love-based mysticism, religions of orthopraxy versus religions of orthodoxy, and ritual versus sincerity. In a widespread narrative, Islam has been classified with Judaism as a Semitic religion and misportrayed as narrowly legalistic in its origin and essence. Sufism, the traditional Islamic science of spiritual formation and nearness to God, has been misportrayed as a narrowly esoteric sect of sorts, a later foreign graft inherently marginal to Islam and its mainstream norms in religious life. Mainstream Islamic normativity generally has tended to be conflated with legal norms to the neglect of the broader array of devotional norms also very much at play in the tradition and the varied modes in which these have been elaborated and transmitted in Muslim societies. Categories such as ritual, mysticism, even religion, imported with their connotations from the West and or exoticized images of the East, have not been suitably configured for Islam or used with sufficient nuance. Some scholars recently have tried to counter Western biases that favor religious orientations emphasizing interior attitudes by revalorizing those that emphasize exterior practice. But the presumed dichotomy in which such oppositions are grounded, and whether it's supported by traditional Islamic discourse and practice or otherwise universal, often remains unquestioned. This is but one example of how the academic legacy bequeathed to us in Islamic studies, notwithstanding the tremendous amount of valuable knowledge that it's given us, significantly obscures even as it partially illumines. Scholarly, scholars' critiques of Orientalism and related Western legacies, and their revised historical accounts of how Islamic devotion has operated in Muslim societies have been essential steps. Yet, a thing we've been crucially lacking and need going forward, in my view, is more concerted inquiry as a field into traditional Islamic practice and discourse taken as insider theory to inform our thinking on Islam and in comparative religious studies. In other words, advances in our thinking Islam within religious studies will rest an important part on advances in our thinking religious studies within Islam. In my doctoral research, I'm finding that discourse on Salat in the Quran and Hadith actually takes a highly integrative approach to interior attitudes and exterior practice while giving special importance to the heart and the interior. This is consistent with contemporary ethnographic findings by Saba Mahmoud in Cairo and Nilofer Heri in Tehran, as well as with research by Talal Asad, interestingly, on medieval Christian monasticism. Interestingly, also, the Quran holds up heartfelt daily prayer among the pious of earlier monotheistic communities as a model for the Prophet Muhammad and his community, 
highlighting in particular the orientation of the dedicated religious, including Christian priests and monks. The discourse in Islam's founding text in general, whether in its treatment of the inner and outer aspects of prayer or the specific constellation of attitudes that an individual is to bring to her direct personal encounter with God in the prayer, or its narrative of resemblance and affinity between the pious across monotheistic communities, reveals at a kind of meta level patterns of thinking that are strongly holistic and complementarian rather than dichotomous, providing a key to understanding many aspects of Islamic thought and lived devotion that Western frameworks have long distorted and made it difficult for observers to grasp. Though the texts were compiled from the 7th to 9th centuries, their sophisticated discourse has significant contributions to make to contemporary theory and religious studies, prompting us to revisit our paradigms not only of ritual, but even of religion itself. So against this backdrop, Professor Graham's work and his humane scholarship approach have represented for me the prime example of scholarship on Islamic devotion that makes a signal contribution to our big picture thinking in Islamic and comparative religious studies while, in, while avoiding pitfalls and lacunae of earlier scholarship. Among the features that can guide us going forward, I'd like to touch briefly upon seven. Many are ways to resist reductionism, a recurring theme in his writings. First, is that the study of religion ought to take, not as its exclusive task, but certainly as its fundamental task, the quest to understand the function and meanings that religious phenomena have had for the persons who hold them sacred. He writes, quote, what Muslims have found in the Quran or anything else is recognized in this perspective as being as hard a fact as any other with which the truly objective scholar must deal. This is more than a matter of what kinds of questions scholars ought to find interesting and compelling. It goes to the heart of what it means to study religion, since phenomena are deemed religious in academic study, precisely because they're regarded by some human beings as such. As he states memorably in a line that I'm sure many have used and will be using in their teaching, um, so long as one uses scripture unreflectively to refer to a document, rather than to a document as it is understood by those for whom it is more than a document, the meaning of scripture as an important phenomenon in religious life and history will be inaccessible. This approach is humane in that it treats religious persons as thoughtful human subjects rather than objectifying them, an attitude that comes across palpably in Professor Graham's writings. Second is non-reductionism in dealing with the transcendent dimension. While humane scholarship, as he describes it, quote, does not claim normative force in a theological or ideological sense and submits to reason and the data accessible to reason, it also does not accept reductionism about the nature of reality or its final comprehensibility solely by reason. Thus, whatever may be a scholar's personal worldview, he impresses upon us that, quote, Humane scholarship recognizes that to reduce another person's faith to purely psychic, social, or genetic determinants, let alone to consider it eccentric, is to pass judgment on matters to which the historian, at least, has no ability to penetrate with any kind of final assurance. Third is that our task of illumining insider understandings need not confine our focus exclusively to the particular and the local or detract from the value and pursuit of generalization. 
A hallmark of Professor Graham's work is his discernment of what he calls red threads that form recognizable patterns in the life and thought of a religious community across time, place, and adherence, even amidst a stunning degree of local and historical diversity. It is, after all, such continuities that enable us to speak meaningfully of any religious tradition. As his work on the oral aspects of scripture shows, illuminating a significant pattern may cast new light on a tradition in multiple respects, enable us to examine local context as well as exceptions more insightfully, and raise our awareness of similar patterns in other traditions and even our own. Fourth is careful attention to the substantive content of religion's <clears throat> primary authoritative sources. Talal Asad, who also identifies tradition as a key concept, stresses that in Islam, religious practice and authoritative discourse cannot be separated. Field research by anthropologists such as Nadia Abu Zahra in Egypt indicates that concepts from Islamic texts pervade lived devotion in Muslim societies, and not just among religious scholars and leaders, but among women and men from all walks of life, urban and rural, literate and non-literate. Assad stresses that in this, we must begin, as Muslims do, from the concept of a discursive tradition that includes and relates itself to the founding texts of the Quran and Hadith. Deep familiarity with these founding texts enables us to better understand the varied ways in which they've been interpreted and appropriated subsequently. Hence, the importance of Professor Graham's careful work to advance our insight into these primary sources. Fifth is provisionality treating our concepts and historical reconstructions as permanently tentative. As he puts it, quote, an essay, a try, or a trial. Always open to revision in light of new data or even old data. It was by reconsidering the existing data that he uncovered that the sacred sayings, the Hadith Qudsi, words of God quoted by the Prophet Muhammad that are not in the Quran, were not late Sufi forgeries, as academics had claimed based on their form and the themes of personal devotion on which they focus, but were present in the early and canonical Hadith collections. This led to his major rethinking of early Muslim understandings of revelation and prophecy. It also cast new light on spiritual dimensions of early Muslim piety and points to Sufism as an outgrowth and elaboration of that piety consistent with both medieval Muslim and more recent academic accounts. Sixth is looking beyond reified concepts to cast light on living realities. His work shows that as we strive to improve our understandings, we need to be on the alert to how the realities of lived devotion can be obscured by reified concepts. These may be from within the tradition, such as later Muslim dogmatic formulations of the distinction between divine word and prophetic word, or from our own context, such as our experience in modern print culture that has led us to equate scripture with the written word. This brings me to the last feature I'll highlight, that our scholars should be self-reflexive. As much as Professor Graham focuses a historical lens upon big questions in Islamic and comparative religious studies, he demonstrates the importance of focusing a historical lens upon the inherited assumptions sensibilities, and habits of thinking that we, as academic observers, are bringing to the traditions and persons we study and upon the cultural and intellectual trends that have shaped them. If we consider our fields in self-reflexive historical perspective, it's evident that the advances and limitations in our thinking Islam and other religions to date have not been only an intellectual matter, but also a cultural and relational matter. 
we've clearly lacked sufficient intellectual engagement with persons of faith immersed in the devotional traditions we study and their ways of thinking, practicing, and drawing on their authoritative sources. Since such insiders have long been doing theory too, we could benefit from our expanding our concept of intellectual community to include such persons, not only persons formally trained as religious scholars and official religious leaders, but also those with other kinds of devotional experience and expertise long valued in their traditions whom insiders regard as models and mentors. Having such persons in the conversation would likely be a significant source of felicitous insights for our field, as well as a counter to reductionism. Had we engaged in theoretical exchanges in this broader type of community previously, many misconceptions and gaps that persisted in the academy for decades would likely have been dispelled and the way open to more sophisticated understandings much more quickly. Since with the exception of Christianity, most religions do not have a legacy in the West of pursuits and insider scholarship on devotion being accepted as part of the academy and placed in sustained conversation with comparative religious studies, Establishing this in the academy for other religions will probably be necessary for the robust emic, etic, intellectual exchange that will enable us to develop the most robust theory in religious studies. As I found in my research on Salat, in Islam at least, thinking Islam within the context of models of piety from other faith communities, an ethic of exchanging insights across traditions, and even guidance for how to do this constructively rather than divisively are already patterns integral to Islam's founding texts. And we ought not limit our horizon to what are being called the Abrahamic traditions. For example, Sachiko Murata reports that first introducing her students to the holistic, complementarian, yin-yang framework of Chinese cosmology greatly improved her students' ability to comprehend Islamic thought. This emic-edic collaboration around theory and comparative study of religion could be a fascinating element in realizing Professor Graham's vision of humane scholarship, which calls for a space in which persons of faith and others undertake rigorous academic study of religion together in mutual respect and without imposing their respective worldviews. The type of open engagement that welcomes everyone to share freely in the terms meaningful for them based on their actual perspectives on reality and sources of inspiration, religious or non-religious, can only benefit us in our quest for understanding. As a relational matter, it's certainly an urgent need in our world today and in the classroom, and a skill for which colleagues across the university and beyond realizing its indispensability in leadership preparation are increasingly looking to us as scholars of religion for guidance. Fortunately, our devotional traditions themselves are rich sources of wisdom and precedence for how and why we might do this, as we've been exploring in the Initiative on Religions and the Practice of Peace. Indeed, we could learn much from the many religious others around the globe who, unlike in our long-standing silo model in the West, have not treated their traditions as wholly separate and inherently opposed systems in their default mode, nor as circumscribing the only spiritually meaningful community, but rather as heritages of people who are interconnected, heritages that have the potential to be mutually informative and even mutually inspirational. And they've often done so not as a relativistic abandonment of their own particular religious perspectives, values and commitments, but rather as an expression of them, and sometimes even as a mandate from them. I expect that if we bring the kind of intellectual humility, self-reflexivity, 
and graciousness that we've been fortunate to experience with Professor Graham over the years, pursuing religious studies together in a way that is truly humane will enable us to enrich our field and our world further by more fully engaging the contributions of persons for whom this pursuit is also divine. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I guess the problem of being the last on the panel is that I have to tear up my notes over and over again because I want to at least look as smart as the previous speakers. Um, so first, let me start by saying that um, I, uh, I met Bill about uh, 10 years ago when I came here to Harvard as a postdoc. Um, and to my surprise, the Dean of the Divinity School actually read a very long and boring email that I sent and accepted to see me. Um, and at that time, I, um, when I first arrived here, uh, being trained in France in um, philosophy and history of science and indoctrinated through my own genealogy as an avid and militant Foucauldian, I started to discover different and new ways of studying religion. And uh, that enabled me, I have to say, that I owe a lot of the work that I do and the inspiration for this work to um, Bill's work and to our conversations. So thank you, Bill. Now, I, what I will try to do here in thinking about Abrahamic um, traditions and the future of Islam and the study of Islam within Abrahamic traditions is, again, to follow some of the threads that uh, Bill has explored in uh, the pieces that he wrote about Abrahamic traditions and also in a number of conversations. And in one of them in particular, uh, Bill looks at the, um, the character of Abraham as a wanderer and a founder of religious sites and how this character gets to be understood, modified, and emphasized in different ways across the different traditions. And in my reading of this, there was the invitation of reading the commonalities and the family resemblance, if you will, of these different uh, three different traditions, uh, not from a sort of a God's eye view where we look and organize these similarities, but also through analyzing how the practitioners and the scholars within these practices themselves are thinking about these similarities. And what role do these similarities, including, of course, the figure of Abraham, uh, play in the construction of religious conscience for these people? So what I will try to do here is just to offer some general um, comments on um, thinking from the point of view of Islam on the idea of the Abrahamic religions and how uh, a lot of Islamic scholars, and I will move chronologically, um, thought about this connection between Islam, um, Christianity, and Judaism. Um, so let me first start by uh, an overall observation that for a lot of Muslim writers in the medieval, early modern, but also in the modern period, the connection between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, uh, which would later be considered or sort of, you know, used to describe or described even in, in Arabic, for instance, as Abrahamic, um, that this connection entails a particular temporal arrangement. Uh, it is not only family resemblance, but it is a making or it, in the making of this family resemblance, there is a particular chronological order where Muslim scholars are keenly aware of the fact that they come last. 
and that coming last is a significant part of the construction of the identity of Muslims and of the foundations, if you will, of the Muslim thought about the place of Islam within world religions. This temporal arrangement matched as well the actual historical arrangement of these different traditions in the Near East, the birthplace, if you will, and the heartland of Islam for a very long time. However, this particular temporal arrangement gets to be twisted and changed in different ways with missionary activity that starts around in the late 17th century and also with colonialism, which as I will mention, will although keeping the chronology of the order of these religions shifts the value attached to this particular chronology. At another level, this particular temporal arrangement provides for a number of problems and challenges, if you will, when you think about Islam and the history of Islam outside of the Near East or outside of the heartland, if you will, and particularly in regions where today the majority of Muslims live. So thinking, for instance, about Islam in Africa, where in many parts of Africa, Islam was indeed the first to arrive of the Abrahamic traditions, and thinking also about Islam in South Asia and Southeast Asia, where again it had the encounter, say, with Christianity, for instance, with rather later, and therefore the temporal arrangement creates a number of other challenges. And these challenges reflect themselves on the writings of Muslim scholars and Muslim authors on one hand, but also on the study and thinking about Islam in these contexts. So let me shift very briefly to thinking about this temporality and how it figured in the writings of sort of more classical writings, if you will, in early Islamic scholars in the medieval and early modern period. And here, again, the temporality is very clear that Islam comes as the end, the last of religion, of religions, and that the message of the Prophet, uh, of Prophet Muhammad, is ultimately the culmination of a long history of salvation, if you will. More importantly here, I would like to highlight the fact that while Christians and Jews belonged into the category of Ahl al-Kitab, they were not the only ones. And the family resemblance that were seen by Muslim scholars at the time was not only limited to Christianity and Judaism, but actually were connected to a number of other traditions. Some of them uh, presumably survived, or at least there was a process of excavating, for instance, who are the Sapiens, uh, where do they belong, are the Zoroastrians, could they be considered also part of the Ahl al-Kitab family, what is the beginning of this Ahl al-Kitab, and here Bill even suggests the idea that maybe Noah is also an interesting character to think about. And for a lot of medieval Muslim scholars, Noah was indeed one of these earlier characters that start, if you will, a history of salvation. The presence of Christianity and Judaism, therefore, in the heartland of Islam, and the focus that a lot of these scholars paid to the connection and the contradiction between Islam on one hand and Christianity and Judaism was seen as an artifact of survival. These were the two big traditions that survived from a longer history of salvation, but by no means are they the only traditions that Islam perceived or Muslim scholars perceived a connection between them and these traditions. The expanding Muslim empire and the idea that the borders are always expanding and there are more people with more traditions coming in all the time allowed for this kind of dream of excavating more and more traditions because of the Quranic promise that every single nation in every single tongue had a particular uh, messenger sent to it. 
More importantly, this process, the dealing with Christianity and Judaism, was also a process of extraction and excavation. Ultimately, the major view of Christianity and Judaism was one of distortion. These were surviving traditions, but distorted ones. Ones that require the kind of correction and modification. And Islam came at the end, on one hand, as the final corrective of this long history of uh, salvation, premised on the theological promise of the survival of Islam till the end of times, and the survival of the Quranic text till the end of times. And therefore, it had to play a role of correcting and changing, if you will, but also abrogating the old traditions that were on one hand corrupted over time, but also that had a lot of, if you will, excessive laws that Islam came to correct and abrogate. And therefore, the task of the scholar interested in the connections between Islam and other religions, and we have evidence of these scholars, a number of people interested in this relationship throughout the medieval period. A lot of these texts survive mainly in terms of polemics and dialogues, but also discussions of other religions. The task of the scholar was twofold. One, to extract and excavate whatever survives, what is the good that survived out there, with the, um, an argument, a legal argument that keeps, that keeps coming up and down over time of whether indeed Christians could be considered monotheists and the assumption that if they cannot be considered monotheists anymore, it has important legal implications, for instance, on marriage between Muslims and uh, Christians, because if they are no longer monotheists, then they are outside of the Ahl al-Kitab uh, tradition in a way. So one, on one hand, there is the excavation and purification project that uses Islam ultimately as the uh, major or sort of the proof text uh, to which you compare all the other traditions, but also connected to that is a case of protecting the Islamic tradition itself from the seeming and the, the growing anxiety about all these other traditions coming from biblical and extra biblical materials that are seeping into Islam. And uh, a lot of people, um, and Walid here also wrote about this, the anxiety, the growing anxiety around Israeliyat and the notion of what do we do with these materials and how we deal with them, which we see uh, expanding over time. Now, I'm gonna jump a few centuries and think about the change that happens to this kind of temporal relations with uh, missionary activities, European missionary activities, and also with uh, colonialism, and with the reimagining, if you will, of Islam in terms of its texts, its major texts that survive from the medieval period, but also the way that it is understood as, quote unquote, a world religion, if you will. In this case, while the chronological arrangement of Islam being ultimately the last one of the three big Abrahamic religions was largely maintained, but as um, Guy explained uh, today and, um, and in his keynote, there was this understanding of essentially Christianity reigning supreme over these other traditions. Now that particular understanding of Christianity being yes, earlier in chronology, but more important in priority, and it's being essentially the proof text, not necessarily for religion, but for civilization, was not only a conversation uh, that was um, sort of conducted uh, among scholars of religion, but was a very relevant conversation for modernists and for scholars trying the projects, different projects of modernization in the Middle East and around the Islamic world. The idea here now was how to think about Christianity not only as a religion, but as a civilizational system. 
which is the proposition that came with a lot of the missionary activities that you find in the books, for instance, of the uh, Syrian college, of the new schools established in Egypt and in Algeria. In all of these places, Christianity was presented not only as a religion that came before Islam, but as a civilizational system where religion functioned in a particular way and where Islam is lagging behind. And in this regard, we see that this temporal relationship between Islam and its preceding Abrahamic traditions acquire, in this case, the notion of experience. Christianity simply, in the best possible way one could say it, had more experience becoming a, civil, a religion of civilization. Now, to give you an example of this, I will shift to one uh, text that was written by um, Farah Anton, who is an important author and scholar um, and uh, uh, sort of a graduate of one of these modern schools that were established in the Middle East, and also a, a very a huge enthusiast of Ibn Rushd or Averroes, and he wrote a lot about him, considering him the last moment, if you will, of Islamic civilization before the full decline. Now, Farah Anton wrote a book where he, a number of articles that were afterwards made into a book, uh, where it was basically following up on the uh, previous comments that were made by Ernest Renat, uh, somebody that Anton looked up to and uh, was a, a, a sort of a devout follower of Ernest Renat, particularly that started in uh, Renat's lecture, L'Islamisme et Science, or Islam and Science, which became again very popular and was read extensively in the Middle East with a lot of people commenting and writing about it. And Anton decided to think about the history of Islam and highlight very specific areas that he thought clearly separated Islam as a religion that controlled people and that led the civilization in the Middle East, ultimately a declining one, and Christianity as a religion, again, that functioned within another civilizational system and led ultimately to the prominence, uh, sort of the uh, supremacy of Europe at the time. He focused, I will, focused on a number of things, but three of them uh, that I want to highlight is the question of uh, violence, uh, that Islam was, the history of Islam was deeply intertwined with violence from the beginning, and that the spread of Islam was basically a spread based on a very primitive religion spreading through violence, and that the, ultimately the work that was done in theology and philosophy of Islam was precisely the result of Muslims encountering Christian and Jewish theologians who were able to inform their ideas about how to think more abstractly about the divine. The second thing, uh, which was probably, um, it, it relates to, um, you know, it, it continues to exist in the scholarship in a, in a manner of ways, that Islam lacked a proper form of spirituality. That again, it was focused on very clear sets of rituals that people have to do, that there's no, if any, emphasis on individual spirituality, and that the call even for people to be sincere in their practices were just a sort of a facade that, uh, that covered the bigger tradition of simply a lot and a lot of rituals and laws. And finally, which was key to Anton's argument, that Islam never went through reform. And here, the comparison again with Christianity, the idea of Islam being eight centuries behind Christianity was highlighted, that Christianity went through reform and Islam can, did not. And if there is any hope for anybody living in the Near East, it would precisely be through going into an accelerated track to reform right away. So do reform and then things will turn out well. Now, I want to think a little bit in the few minutes that I have left 
about one of the major, do I have a few minutes left? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so very few minutes left, I promise. <laughs> so, um, about the response that was uh, produced by Muhammad Abdu, a very famous uh, Muslim reformer uh, that was published, uh, serialized first in Al-Manar and then afterwards collected into a book uh, entitled Islam and Christianity, uh, Modernism and um, Civilization. Uh, and in there, where Abdu basically touches on the exact same points. But what is interesting, and I, I will not go into through, uh, through a lot of examples, but what is interesting in what Abdu is doing is that ultimately he accepts the premise that Anton is providing, that this is the way that religions should behave. That the question of, say, violence and conquest, something, by the way, that was, that was um, sort of defended on the pages of Al-Manar itself, half a decade earlier, that this simply is wrong and it didn't happen. And we start here seeing uh, sort of the beginning of a larger literature in, that revises Islamic history and presents the process of conquest, Islamic conquest, not as the active process of spreading the word of God, but as a series of defensive wars that simply intended to protect Muslims from the attack of the Byzantines and Persians. And therefore, Abdu recreates the history of Islam as one that spread basically through trade and travel, and that it was necessary for people to go and conquer the Byzantine and uh, Sassanid territories in order to protect the Muslims there. In the same way, Abdu also accepts the necessity of reform, except that he places the reform within the Islamic tradition and argues that it indeed happens and it continues to happen. And ultimately, in thinking about proper spirituality, he starts to create, again, a narrative that will continue afterwards, that roots or sort of tries to uncover forms of spirituality in Islam, but at the same, is spirituality that is very similar to Christian spirituality, that is, but at the same time, presenting critique of forms of Christian spirituality, particularly uh, the idea of monastic life, for instance, as something that is antithetical to modern life. What I want to say at the end is that if there is, in thinking about the, what is the future of studying Islam within the narrative of Abrahamic uh, religions, I would argue that one important direction that we should take, that is again inspired in large part by Bill's work, is to think about what this family resemblance mean within uh, every single tradition. And in the case of Islam, I argue that this family resemblance and how it changes and how the perception of the relationship between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism keeps changing from the medieval into the early modern into the modern period will give us an idea about how Muslim scholars try to place their tradition within a changing world and within, in the case of the modern period, a world that is now presenting Christianity as the example of the real world religion that results in a world civilization. Thank you. We have half an hour. We're going to conclude at 2.45, so we have a few minutes for our panelists to discuss amongst themselves. So uh, the floor is open. Questions amongst yourself? Okay, well, I'll ask a question then. Um, I'll ask a question for, for Guy. Guy, your paper, uh, your presentation had to do with the, the role um, that Jewish scholars played largely in the 19th century uh, because of their having um, Hebrew and Aramaic, they naturally gravitated towards being Semiticists, Islamicists. 
um, and they served as this bridge figure, uh, bridge figures um, in the study of uh, the religions uh, of Europe and the Near East, and eventually, you suggested at the end, even the Far East. I'm wondering what you think of that in light of a figure we've discussed a bunch in the last two days, Louis Massignon, and another we haven't mentioned is Henri Corbin, his student. I mentioned him. I know you mentioned him, thank you, yeah. Corbin doesn't get mentioned enough. Um, so, uh, Massignon had this very st strong and strident view about what Semitic languages were uh, and, and that they were naturally anti-idolatrous. Um, and uh, which is why he, one of the reasons why he dismissed the Persian tradition, because he thought that Indo-European languages, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Indo-European languages were prone to uh, idolatry. Um, and so he could um, dismiss um, Ibn Arabi and other figures from the Persian tradition, as he highlighted the Semitic tradition. So I'm wondering how you think of that French, largely Catholic, um, scholarship of the early 20th century and its fascination with Semiticism, uh, the category of the Semitic, in light of um, these Jews. Fair enough. Well, thank you uh, for bringing me, us back to Renan. Everything starts with Renan, and Massignon here is really echoing Renan, nothing, nothing new there. Um, Renan is not a Catholic, he's an anti-Catholic. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, he went to the seminary, but then he dropped, and he says at some point, he writes at some point, uh, had he been born a German Protestant, it would have been possible for him to keep his faith and scholarship, but that was not the case. And so he, he really, I mean, when he gives his uh, opening, uh, there is something important that I want to say here through that, that relates to our uh, discussion. In 1861, uh, Renan is appointed to the Collège de France uh, for the study of Hebrew. And in his, you know, he's already, he's a young man, but already um, a public intellectual in France, polarizing, uh, people, the liberals support him and the Catholics who are still very powerful in France at the time hate him and demonstrate, thousands of people demonstrate outside the Collège de France for him and against him when he's giving his lecture about you know, the contribution of Semitic uh, cultures to civilization and there he has one sentence uh, where he says, about Jesus, this man, if uh, this man, and I have no objection for those who want to call him divine, although here we should deal only with science, according to criteria of science. He's fired the next day from his position because of having supposed that Jesus is a man and and that we should not call him uh, a, a, a god, divine. Um, and uh, what happens in France afterwards, in later he, is, he goes back, comes back to the Collège de France, he's reappointed, 
1879, uh, he, he is the administrator general of the Collège de France, and he is instrumental, very powerfully so instrumental, in the establishment of the chair uh, of the study of religion at the Collège de France, which is given to a Protestant and then two other Protestants later on. Um, and what you have in France at the Collège de France and in, from 1886 on when the theological faculty, which is by tradition, of course, Catholic, is dismantled and replaced by the section des sciences religieuses of the Ecole Pratique de which we both know, um, you have in France, in Paris, the only place in Europe, I think, I'm pretty certain, where Protestants, Catholics, and Jews study religion from a non-theological viewpoint, and, and together. Otherwise, you have only theological faculties, and they are either Protestants or Catholics, and Protestants cannot study with a Catholic, teach in Catholic, or study in Catholic faculties, and vice versa, and Jews certainly are not allowed to become students or professors. So you have in France a very important tradition in the late 19th century up to the first World Conference of the Study of Religion, of the History of Religion in 1900 in Paris, where France, Paris, is the world center of the study of religion, and it's not Catholic. It's quite the contrary. It's in reaction to Catholicism. So that's, and, 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 and the tradition of the Semitic, the Semitic religion is basically what Renan wants to do for the Semitic languages and civilizations and religions what Max Müller had done for the Indo-European or Aryan ones. So that's the tradition which uh, Matignon is a, a latecomer in. Okay. Any comments amongst yourself before we... Then, Bill, why don't we give it to you? Do you have a, a, a question or a comment that you'd like to make or shall we open it to the floor? Okay, and I gather we have mics. One, yes. We have one mic. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, raise your hand, and uh, we'll have a mic find its way to you up, up there in the back, please. Um, my question's for uh, Dr. Graham and uh, Elizabeth. Um, th first of all, thank you to all the panelists for speaking. It was highly informative and uh, definitely learned a lot. Um, Elizabeth, in her speech, mentioned uh, Dr. Graham's humane scholarship and some of the challenges that um, the study of religion, and particularly Islamic studies, has in ensuring that the subject and people a part of the Islamic discourse are included in the study of that subject. And so I wanted to hear from Dr. Graham and uh, Elizabeth kind of the challenges uh, that ha might be encountered with humane scholarship. So specifically, like Western academia might have 
uh, a certain language or discourse or a set of rules that may make it difficult for certain Islamic scholars or thinkers to uh, participate as a part of that discourse. So I wanted to hear from Dr. Graham's experience on how he's kind of uh, confronted that challenge to include people that might normally be excluded from that discourse, and then from the rest of the panelists if they have thoughts on you know, challenges that they've faced, and then uh, wh like what's the next frontier for, for Islamic studies as it relates to this challenge? The last question is for the next panel, maybe. Well, so it puts me on the spot. Maybe uh, uh, Liz can straighten it out uh, after I make a stab at this. Um, I, you know, in terms of challenges, uh, I can I think back to a conference on the Quran in Australia um, that uh, I guess I gave a keynote for back in 19, when was it, 1980, 1978, sometime uh, around that time, late 70s. Um, and uh, there we had, uh, we had both uh, Muslims who were scholars in Western institutions uh, doing Islamic studies. We had also some Muslims who were traditional Muslim scholars and so on. And I remember as a very young and green, uh, wet behind the ears sort of scholar of, of things Quranic to begin with, but just of Islam in general, that um, I sort of made bold to say that um, I thought it was possible, and I, I think I still do, uh, to do good historical scholarship um, across boundaries of one's religious allegiances. That, but it does require, I think, on both sides, and that's where you, know, you will cut out some people at one end of the, either the Christian spectrum or of the, uh, let's say, agnostic atheist spectrum. On the one end, you may cut them out, and on the other end, someone on the Muslim spectrum uh, of religiosity who is not prepared, uh, I think, to, uh, if in a way, to sort of put things on the table and say, well, we really have to wrestle with this. I, I think this morning, Shadi Nasser's uh, contribution give you something, an indication of the difficulties when it comes to something like the Quranic text and the variant readings. Uh, it's fine, but a lot of Muslims have not recognized or will still not recognize the degree to which there has been this much variation in readings of the Quranic text, which Muslims early on and right through the medieval period and down to the present day specialists uh, have accepted. So even within any given tradition, uh, I think you can have people who still feel that you can't tamper with the scriptural text, you can't look at how it has been discussed as a variable text at times. There will be others who are quite willing to sit down and say, look, this is what has happened. How do we deal with this as scholars? And then how do we deal with it as people of faith of one kind or another? But I do think it requires on both sides that sort of um, uh, willingness. I, I've always felt, uh, and this goes back to my teacher as, as much of my work does, Wilfred Smith. Uh, Wilfred used to speak about um, always wanting to, uh, to look at what he called the tertium quid, uh, which was, uh, uh, you know, was, was always a third thing rather, than, uh, uh, rather than, than, you know, me looking at what you uh, believe and have to say and think uh, or don't think, and you looking at what I have to say, but rather uh, uh, looking rather at a third thing. And I've, I've sort of always taken that up as being important, and that is that I think if scholars from two very different faith standpoints, or unfaith, faith or unfaith, I, I think it's the same, um, 
from whatever faith standpoints, if they're coming from different standpoints, if they have something they're both really genuinely interested in and committed to in the way of a scholarly problem or subject, it ought to be possible for them to talk about that in the academy uh, in a sort of free, free zone, uh, a, a zone, a safe zone, uh, if you like. And they should be willing to do that. And that I realize for traditionalist scholars in almost every religious community, that's often not possible or they don't feel that it's possible. But I've also seen some traditionalist scholars who did feel that it was, in fact, possible to do that and they could enter into that. Uh, it's just that it's often dangerous within, for one, you know, for a scholar to do that within their own community because there will be other traditionalist scholars, uh, conservative scholars, if you want to call them that, uh, who will blame them for having entered into these kinds of discussions. Uh, so I don't want to, I mean, I'm saying all this in a, in a very uh, sort of inchoate way because I don't want to minimize uh, the difficulties or, you know, uh, give a very rosy picture of how easy I think uh, cross-religious or cross, you know, confessional, and by confessional I mean, you know, the Marxist is equally religious as far as I'm concerned on the one end as, as is the traditional scholar in any religious community on the other end. Uh, Western, you know, secular humanists uh, are, are, can be equally so. So I, when I'm talking about confessional stances, I don't mean just traditional religion stances. But I do think it's, uh, it, it is far, far too rosy to think that it is easy uh, to actually make real progress, real scholarly progress, uh, when you are dealing with people's deeply entrenched religious faith uh, and when they feel that they are in danger or threatened uh, in some fashion uh, by putting their cards on the table, as it were, and letting people who don't carry the same uh, religious standpoint talk about those things. Those are often sacred things. So I don't think that's very easy. I think lots of times it can't be done. I've always said I'm not a wild fan of interreligious dialogue efforts because I looked at a couple of those and maybe I don't have a firm enough stance on one side or the other to enter into a dialogue. That might be part of my problem. But the other problem is that dialogue is often two monologues. Uh, and people really aren't that interested uh, in trying to get into what I would call a safe space in the middle. That is not always safe, obviously. It's a, it's a space where dangerous things have to be talked about. Uh, but it's a safe space in the sense that both have to at least give the other person the ability to respond and to articulate their particular standpoint without being attacked uh, as being, you know, not religious enough or too religious or, or whatever. So I'm not terribly optimistic, uh, but I do think working on a tertian quid when two people come together on a third thing that they both care deeply about is the easiest way to get cross-confessional or cross-religious uh, discussions going. I think that's much the easiest way uh, to do it. You get two specialists together who really care about a text or about a historical period uh, or about a uh, an historical development or whatever it might be and turn them loose and I, I, my confidence is great that they're going to find ways to bridge religious divides much better than people who actually come together to say well we, we have such religious differences let's talk about those differences. I'm just not sure that talking again about the, uh, the, the uh, about each other is the way to do that. So that's a very inchoate way of trying to Thank you. say something to that. Maybe Liz can answer that. I think we have a commonality in sensibility about this as well, because 
for example, in religions and the practice of peace, we're looking into the question of how people have drawn on religious, spiritual, cultural, ethical resources to foster well-being, justice, peace across differences, and how people can learn from that in contemporary conflict transformation, peace building, and leadership. And so that's really our question. And so, but what we do is we do create a space where, where whether people are coming from a religious point of view or not, um, really welcoming people to come from their own perspective on reality, their own sources of inspiration. Sometimes that's humanist, sometimes that's agnostic, sometimes it's religious, sometimes it's deeply religious traditionalist, sometimes it's spiritual, not religious, the whole gamut. But because we're focusing on a question that's deeply important to the people who are, who are looking into it, and because people are generally recognizing it to have to do with some ultimate questions, ultimate questions of of meaning and, and purpose and how we relate to one another and how that relates to our basic values and things. Um, I think for many people, um, it does fit within the spiritual, even if they're not religious at all, or even if they're atheistic, we have people you know, like that who, but who can engage on a level so that um, we can be talking about some of these ultimate things in the context of a specific question, um, which is a consequential question you know, in contemporary times. And because people are also interested in how they can enhance their capacities to be people who are transforming their, themselves and their environment for the good, they're open to learning whatever wisdom may come from other people without having, there isn't the question of adopting wholesale other people's points of view, but there's the recognition that even if we have very different points of view on reality, fundamental differences, you know, you may say something, share something about something that inspires you or an experience you've had, something like that, a practice that you have that I find very moving and also can learn a great deal from. So it's very interesting because we don't even get into the question, are we different, are we similar? I, I personally feel the perseveration on this kind of question is it's really um, not always very helpful. And there will some people some people will feel you know the glass is half full the glass is half empty and you just kind of argue about that forever so we actually don't even really get into that but i think what people do is they experience they experience differences they experience similarities in in the context of it and then they can assimilate that as they wish but one thing that we're trying to do and that I think also has been a barrier. There's, there's a barrier that Professor Graham talks about that's very real, about people from you know, with deeply held religious perspectives being open to look at some of this historical and critical analysis and things like that, and be, want to be in that space and open themselves to that. But also, there's definitely been a secularist bias um, where people will say, you know, you shouldn't really talk about your faith perspective and how that intersects with your work until after you have tenure. You know, that's a pretty long road to wait until you start grappling with that. Or things like, um, you know, you have to bracket your faith and think like an atheist, you know, in order to, in order to, act, to engage in the academic. So, I mean, I respect that some people have that view, but to present it that this is the view of the academy, so we must all think that way. Honestly, I know many people of faith, who I think would have been great scholars, who felt it to be su such a hostile environment and that way constantly getting messages like that, that um, they had no way, no support to learn how to grapple in that difficult way. I feel very grateful, because having Professor Graham as my mentor, I've been able to grapple with that and other wonderful mentors, Professor Asani, Professor, Professor Ahmed, but 
Um, I think people really need that and they need to feel like they can belong. And I think what that means is that people who are coming from a secular perspective and truly you know, see things that way also have to be open to being in a space that is the way Professor Graham describes, where the transcendent dimension, you know, as in scholarship, not to say that we all just presume that we have the answer to what this is. You know, we have a reductionist view. We all know that really, you know, it's the materialist secular perspective. We all know that if anybody you know, wants to be, you know, thought of as a rational person, they have to have that point of view. So um, if I think people coming from secular perspectives or from a certain religious perspective can be willing to be in a space where people truly have different perspectives and then engage in the kind of serious, rigorous, open-minded scholarship that Professor Graham is saying, I think that's where we are, one place that we are today that we have to grapple with. And I feel like we're only just beginning, but there's, there seems to be a real interest in that. Liz, something you said make, makes me want to offer a concrete proposal. Um, because you suggested that we have to attend to the, the question of who we are not listening to when we construct the category of the Abrahamic religions now or through history. And it occurs to me um, that that's a very wise question to ask with respect to the history of the Abrahamic religions as a category. And the tradition I know best is the Christian tradition. And I would like to make a concrete proposal that we attend to Eastern Christian voices in, the, uh, in that tradition, uh, in, in this category, because I feel it's often driven by Western European Christians framing it. And Eastern Christian traditions, in fact, have lived in the heartland of the Abrahamic religions for much longer um, and uh, may, have, may, may teach us something about the uh, benefits and pitfalls of that category itself. And then I, the second concrete proposal is not my own, but the, I'm borrowing it from Stephanie Saldana last night, who gave a very rousing uh, presentation here in this room about how uh, we should probably also be attending to those religious minorities in the Middle East who do not fit into the category of the Abrahamic, um, the Mandeans, the Yazidis, um, uh, and uh, the Druze. Um, and others, and, and assess how the, the, if there's going to be a future of the study of the Abrahamic religions, we might want to consider how that category um, is viewed from those who are very, very proximate, um, approximately excluded from it. So, two concrete proposals. Can I just add one? Um, I, I, I agree with everything that was said, and um, I just want, want to add one thing, because I think it's important to also clarify that um, I think it is problematic and can be dangerous to think about the scholars studying Islam coming from the tradition as a, a monolith, as just one group, and this is not true. Um, and um, I mean, uh, Guy has shown us sort of uh, more of the history um, of the study of religion in a way, but if chronologically speaking, this is also a time when uh, religion is being studied and the academy is being created in the Middle East and the Islamic world as well. So there is a, as long a tradition in the Middle East and the Islamic world with the same difficulties as well about how to deal with, you know, who gets fired and who stays, etc. And I think the uh, question about 
the secular study or um, humanist study of religion versus the study of religion that comes from a standpoint of faith, uh, which is again in itself not a monolith, neither of the two should be considered as a monolith, is not only and should not only be thought of as uh, a question that sort of the Western Academy deals with when it, it allows people, frankly, like myself, to come here. No, this is really a question that also the study of Islam and of other religions in the Middle East and the Islamic world has worked with and continues to work with throughout. So, um, and again, there are so many multiple views, but there is a dynamism. I just, I'm just warning against the idea of thinking about the scholars studying Islam coming from um, culturally or religiously, um, or you know, from the tradition as a monolith. I think this is, uh, there is so many multiple views and uh, so many multiple approaches, and it's not only things that are related to law and scripture, uh, but some of the major um, uh, sort of, you know, divert, sort of some of the major contributions, for instance, happened in uh, the study of Islamic feminism and the rise of, you know, the study of the history of women in Islam. Um, and so I'm just, you know, I think again, I agree with everything that was said. Uh, but I want to highlight that, that the picture is way more complex than just two poles that are, you know, uh, opposing one another. Perhaps we can take, yes, Mohsen. Um, my question is for Professor Shumza. Thank you. Um, I love counterfactual questions, and your talk poses this really important mm -hmm. counterfactual. Why? the category of sort of Abrahamic religions. <coughs> Why do we have a chair of comparative philology at Oxford at that point for Max Muller, but not a chair of Abrahamic religions, for example? <coughs> and I'm wondering, do you think it's potentially because of the romantic um, impulse between, uh, behind uh, the creation of the field in uh, Max Muller himself, Rudolf Otto, so on and so forth, the idea that in a way all religions, um, even demon worship, as Rudolf Otto puts it, is sort of a reflection of the, the numinous is in yeah. there, and it's yeah. really just one stage in, in that larger history. So do you think there was some conscious resistance to carving out a smaller set because of that romantic idea that all these religious sensibilities, even in savages, as Max Muller sometimes puts it, are part of the same sort of overarching category? Or do you think uh, the idea of in the Indo-European context uh, and the, the idea of shared similarity between Sanskrit and ancient Greece and Latin and William Jones, as you mentioned also, is that why there was um, resistance? Okay, I mean, it's a very, thank you, uh, Mohsen, it's a very complicated, historical question uh, or problem, and I've dealt with it very succinctly, you know, in, 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 in a few points. Uh, it's, um, on the one hand, I mean, obviously, comparative religion starts, uh, has its acme in the, lay, in the last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the of the 20th century, up to the First World War, basically. 
comparative religion is fine, and this is also, it, it's not only romantic, it is, uh, it is an offspring also of the imperialist times. I mean, the British in India, you compare Indian law to European law and so on. Um, at the same point, and this is what I wanted to say, I mean, no one scholar is responsible, guilty, of course, they reflect the zeitgeist. But what I wanted to say is that at the same time, on the one hand, the whole world suddenly becomes open and can be studied and so on with the same methods. At the same time, European Christians, either nominally Christian or seriously Christian, do not want to hear about Judaism and Islam as being close to Christianity. It's another culture. And since it's a culture we know, we think we know, we've known for many years, but now the real fashion is elsewhere. So it's being dropped. Uh, and then there is also a very strong rejection of both Islam, and we mentioned, uh, you know, the, the colonialism, the French in, in, in Algeria, for instance, and, uh, and, and the Jews, mainly in, this comes mainly from in German-speaking countries, because instead of speaking of Indo-European, they say Indo-Germanen, uh, and then it's, uh, then we know the, the results, but it has nothing to do with what uh, we're, no, it has to do, but it's not directly related with what we're dealing now. I want to ask, if I may, a question, and I don't know to whom. Um, <laughs> Those are the best kind. Uh, about uh, Muslim scholarship of Islam. There has been in the next generation or so, uh, what seems to me, as an outsider in some ways, uh, a huge increase, a dramatic increase of young excellent critical scholars of Islam. Something that was barely the case even in the 1970s. I mean, Mohsin Mahdi was here and so, but, and Sabra, but there were few such people. Um, I know these scholars in Western Europe and in North America. I don't know how much this has percolated in Muslim countries. And, you know, both in the Middle East and outside of the Middle East, in Indonesia and so on. And, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm asking this question, to what extent, and, and if it has not percolated, to what extent are Muslim scholars, critical scholars of Islam in the West being perceived by their colleagues teaching in universities in Muslim countries. Uh, it's, it's a, I'm curious, simply. I don't know. Does anyone want to take Professor Strums's question up? I can say a few words. Um, yeah. Okay, I've often noticed the same thing from the time that I began graduate work in the area of Islamic studies, where there are very, very few young Muslims, in, if any, in my own graduate classes. And then 
the vast increase in this over the last recent decades. I think demographically you can trace it to the change in the immigration laws in the US and in Canada in the late 1960s and now we're seeing you know, the grandchildren um, or yes. great-grandchildren, the people who emigrated, they've gone through American universities, they've been influenced by people like Bill Graham and consequently have taken graduate studies in this area of, of, of great um, concern. I, you know, I, I'd like to think I, that, that perhaps the intellectual center of the Muslim world is expanding rapidly with this, you know, the kinds of young scholars that we now see in our own universities in America and in Europe. But I have the same question myself about the extent to which there is a reception of that scholarship in, um, in places of Islamic learning. I'm going to a conference at Al-Azhar in a few weeks with that question very much in mind. And more broadly, in going to what Ahmed had said and your very good distinction that you know, we're not dealing with monoliths here, we're dealing with great diversity. Um, if you would be willing to talk a little about, bit about where you see some lively intellectual centers within Muslim-majority countries and where you see things continue to be a bit more restricted. Well, I, I think, um, so th this is obviously a, a very good question. I think it, it cannot be fully separated from the state of um, higher education in many countries around the Middle East and the Islamic world. So um, part of this answer will be the same for engineering and for medicine and for um, history and for uh, literature, etc., um, which you know may not be or may not have the kind of uh, hot topic designation, if you will, as the critical study of Islam, which is basically that you have in um, sort of in parts of the Islamic world and uh, the Middle East that had some of the longest um, sort of traditions of um, university systems. Um, it's, uh, there is economic crises, there is political crises, there are problems and persecution of a lot of professors and, and faculty and students. And there's also brain drain, uh, which sort of you know, brings a lot of these mm -hmm. people outside of the Middle East into Western Europe and the United States. So, that's, so let me preface the answer with this. Um, but in addition to that, um, I think there is a, a, a growing, uh, there is a lively scholarship that um, continues to have in, in different sort of traditions. Now obviously, um, places like uh, Indonesia, for instance, or Malaysia, and in Turkey, there's long traditions of uh, mm -hmm. You know, very yes. you know, well-respected universities and departments, and a lot of scholarship that continues to be produced. Um, that again, in a number of topics, and, and but also Iran. And, and, Iran. and Iran, of course, yes, um, that continue to be uh, produced. And other, um, so that's one side. Uh, the other side is again to warn against um, thinking of uh, some uh, traditionally quote-unquote foreign universities as foreign. Um, so I don't, so for instance, um, a lot of the, um, you know, pe when people look at the scholarship in the Middle East, for instance, they are always excluding the work produced in the American University of Beirut and the American University of Cairo as basically American, not Middle Eastern. And that's, 
a false distinction because it isn't, of course. Uh, the scholars, the students, the places, the intellectual activity that these people engage in um, are part and parcel of, of the work. And um, so if you, when you bring these back, you can see again important centers of scholarship that are being formed. Um, but also, you know, it, uh, a place that I'm more familiar with in Egypt, for instance, um, there is, uh, because of the economic situation, because of the political repression, etc., one needs to also look beyond the sort of the walls of the university, because there the walls of the university yeah. are actual walls that have gates that are closed and police protecting them. So it's not, you know, you need to look outside of this and see um, a lot of places, uh, centers, and um, research spaces, um, events, and meetings, and seminars, and workshops, many of them are organized by uh, people who had, you know, prepared degrees in, in universities in the region, or in Europe, or in, in the United States, and are trying to uh, develop spaces for themselves outside uh, the walls of the university, and at times at the risk of being honestly uh, arrested. So it's it's a uh, you know I think it's part and parcel of the situation in general. Leila had something. Yes. I just want to add to this. I don't know if it's not it's not directly addressing it academically, but when my book was on women in Islam was tra translated into Arabic. I was sued for heresy in Cairo, so. <laughs> yeah, that's that is definitely part of it as well. Yes, uh, yeah, but I, but again, I think it's it's sort of it's um, there is growing work in a number of places, um, but the situation. Well, perhaps on that note, we should conclude. Um, we it's uh, two fifty. We are scheduled to start again at three. So let's say three o five, so we can all caffeinate. Uh, <laughs> and where is that? That must be down at the hall. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you.